0: Well, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we again turn to the scriptures, we pray that these things that are recorded for us might help us to understand the depth to which our Lord Jesus sunk when he went to the cross for us. But also may they help us to know how much we owe to him who gave himself so willingly for us. Be our teacher and our guide, we pray, for his sake. Amen. Well, this morning we come back to these series of messages based on Matthew 26 and 27 as we inch along closer and closer to the cross. With this chapter and the next one, Uh, just a prelude to the great climax in the gospel record of his death and resurrection. Last week, Keith would have noted with you, Jesus in the garden, wrestling with the will of God, accompanied by his 11 disciples, and of course Judas, who arrived into that garden to betray him. Give him to the authorities. And so this morning we follow through the next series of steps. And we could call those steps downward steps if you like. Downward steps. Jesus went down in order to get up on the cross. Think about that. The things that happened to him were all to humiliate him and to lower him so that on the cross, he became the lowest of the low. As we go through the text this morning, I want you to note that Matthew paints for us three very vivid scenes, all telling us something about the characters involved around the Lord Jesus, but especially the Lord Jesus himself. The first scene that we come across is in verses 57 to 68. It takes place in the palace of the high priest Caiaphas, where Jesus faced the threats of many witnesses testifying against him. See, after his betrayal by Judas, after the disciples had deserted him, after his arrest, his apprehension by the temple guards and others whom Judas had brought to arrest him in the garden, Jesus faced a night and a morning of trials, that is, judicial trials. The Gospel writers bring us this in some detail so that we might see something of what Jesus underwent during that night and into that morning. And also to show us that in the midst of this civilised society, with the best courts in the whole of the civilised world, that Jesus received not one inch of justice. Verses 53 onwards tell us of these events, these tragic events, but yet events that had to happen in order that Jesus might get to the cross. But yet to read of what transpired in this kangaroo court is sad indeed. You should know for a start that the court was illegally convened, and that it broke all the rules of fairness and justice, and then when no witnesses could be found to bring any charge against him, that the court should have been dismissed and the prisoner released. Then also you should know that it's not possible to find anyone guilty by being placed under oath By the judge of the court who brought forth from him a forced but a willing admission. Yet in the midst of all that is wrong and illegal about this court, do not lose sight of this. That when Jesus was reviled, he did not strike back. He did not revile in return. He did not give like for like. When pressed for a truthful admission of who he was, he confessed. He did not deny the truth, even though he knew that his admission would lead to his death. This is shown by Matthew in two ways for us. For a start, we see the silent witness of Jesus. This is emphasized in verse 63. It's not only important because it's a fulfillment of Scripture, but it also testifies to the illegality and the immorality of the trial. Uh, Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, who are already gathered at the house of Caiaphas. And by this, Matthew is letting us know that the religious leaders are leading a conspiracy against him. It was a judicial meeting that they called. A meeting at night for the purposes of prosecuting a capital case which was against their own laws. And they do this, of course, because their minds are already made up. They know what they want, they just need to get there. This was not a trial in order to prove the evidence, but to find the evidence. And so the text speaks of their failed attempt to bring forth any competent witness who could testify against Jesus and support any charge that could put him to death. No witnesses. And then two stepped forward and two accused Jesus of saying something about his threats to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, which of course we know he wasn't talking about the physical temple, but his own body. And though the high priest asked Jesus to defend himself against that charge, that charge in and of itself was not corroborated. So what can the high priest do? I want to put this man to death. I need a charge. I need a witness. What can be done? Well, we've broken the law. We've bent the law so far. Why don't we break it all together? Grill the accused from the chair. Put him under oath. And yet, Jesus responds with silence. That silence is because of his willingness to submit to the Father's plan. The only time that Jesus opens his mouth is to make clearer the testimony about who he is, not to defend himself. Do you hear the words of Isaiah 53, 7? Ringing in your ears. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter, like a sheep which is silent before its shearers, so he opened not his mouth. A silent witness, but then in verse 64, we see a bold witness. Uh, This was not in contradiction of the previous silence. Understand that. Here he's under oath from the high priest not to defend himself but in fact to say something that is going to get him into deeper trouble. And his reply is crystal clear because not only the disciples and not only the multitudes but also the high priest and the Sanhedrin have this misunderstanding of who he claims to be when he says he's the Messiah. But the prophets say that The Messiah will be like this, and he very clearly tells them, based on what the prophets have said, Psalm 110 and Daniel 7, he tells them, I am your judge. You put me on trial, but I am your judge. No wonder the high priest tears his robes. You couldn't find a more clear or bold testimony or a more unmistakable claim from Jesus to his lordship and his divinity from his own mouth. Don't forget that. It's so sad today that there are still scholars abounding in religious studies departments and universities across the world who can't seem to figure out who Jesus thinks he is. And their reading of the gospel. It's sad because even the Sanhedrin were able to figure it out. They didn't believe it, but they figured it out. Jesus made an unmistakable testimony I am God. And then in the next verses, we note their response to this witness. Are they convinced? Does the word of God resonate deep within them and move them to repentance? Do they fall at his feet in worship and say, we're so sorry, we didn't understand? Or does it have the opposite effect and confirm them in their unbelief and harden their hardened hearts? Blasphemy is the charge. Strike across the face for his trouble just a precursor of all that is to come. The second drama takes place in the courtyard of the high priest's palace. Verses 69 to 75, we see how Jesus faced the tragedy of one disciple who denied him. Now, you'll remember that after sharing the last supper with his disciples and after the disciples had left the upper room and made their way to the Mount of Olives, that Jesus had all turned to them and said, you will all fall away this night. And he gave them scriptural proof. You remember that the disciples and Peter particularly argued with Jesus, contending that he was mistaken. In this instance, Jesus, no. No. You're wrong. I'm not going to fall away from you. Even though all may fall away because of you, I I will never. There's 33. Well, Jesus reminded Peter what was going to happen, that before the sun rose, before the rooster would crow, he would deny him those three times. And Matthew said all the disciples said the same thing as Peter. No, we all never do that. Now, remembering that is crucial for your understanding of these next verses, because there's recorded the sad but true story of the triple denial by Peter, a man who almost made good on what he promised. At least we have to give him this credit that when all the disciples forsook him and fled, at least Peter followed. At least he was there, Even if he was at a distance, at least he made the effort to track Jesus down, to pursue the event, to follow Jesus up to this point in time, quite unlike the others who had long abandoned their master. But that's the only credit we can give him. For our last scene closes with Peter under very little pressure denying Jesus. The servant girl of the high priest was not some high-powered government official who's slamming him against the wall and demanding from him, are you a follower of Jesus? And if you are, I'm going to kill you on the spot. There were apparently no bodily threats. There were no promises of him being imprisoned. Just, aren't you a Galilean? Your accent gives it away. There was potential danger, but there was no overt threats. And all of this provides the context of Peter's denial. And all these things heighten the tremendous failure on Peter's behalf. Let's remember that when he got inside the gate of the courtyard, He was overcome with fear. After all, what could have happened to him if he'd said, yes, I am a Galilean. Yes, I know Jesus. Yes, I am one of his disciples. I suspect very little would have happened to him. But this was the night when everything was topsy-turvy and wrong and the thought that Jesus had been arrested was beyond his comprehension. He was the Messiah who would live forever. How could he be arrested and face death? Of course, we should be ever wary of judging Peter, pointing the finger at him. You know what happens? Three are pointing back at you. Are you asleep when you should be praying? Are you fighting when you should be submitting? Are you denying when you should be brave? We must never forget our weakness apart from the grace of Christ or forget the exceeding sinfulness of sin. So think on these. One thing we ought to remember here is our weakness. Uh, Peter is the man who once said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Listen to this profession compared with this, I do not know the man. If you think you can stand on your own, if you think you can do it in your own strength, here is a divinely chosen apostle, chosen by Jesus, who falls and can't do it. Another thing to consider here is our sin. The passage shows us what sin is. Sin is betrayal. Sin is rebellion and betraying your master. Yes, I know this is a peculiarly acute sin, but in the end, this is the picture of all sin because God has created us all and when we sin, we betray him, the one who loves us and the one who made us. Judas betrays him, yes. Peter betrays him, yes. J.C. Ryle says here, it was a great sin. We see a man who had followed Christ for three years, who had been forward in professing faith and love towards him, a man who'd received boundless mercies and loving kindnesses, had been treated by Christ with love. It's he who denies even knowing him three times in a row. And then in this part, we see how to fall into sin, how to do it. Matthew paints it for us. Peter is, first of all, overconfident. You're going to deny me. No, I'm not. Then he's prayerless. Come and pray with me. No, I'm asleep. Where he should have been vigilant Peter was negligent. Where he should have been prayerful, Peter was prayerless. And then he's compromised suddenly in the company of unbelievers and they begin to challenge him on his relationship to Christ and in the context of overconfidence and underpreparedness, what happens? He falls and if he falls, you and I can fall. But that's not the last word, thankfully. Jesus never let go of Peter. He warned ahead of time that he was going to do this. And he warned him because he loved him and because he had plans for Peter and he wasn't going to let Peter go. But that's not all. If you turn to Luke 22 verse 61, you'll find something else. Luke tells us that at the very moment when the rooster crowed, someone was looking into Peter's eyes. Jesus was looking at him at that very moment when the third denial rolled off his lips. The Saviour was looking at Peter. His face likely covered with spittle and black and blue from blows he'd received. But that look from Jesus broke his heart. Warfield says, Our Saviour, as he stood giving account in his trial, working for the saving of the world, had time to turn a meaningful glance to his following disciple and save him in the saving of the world because Peter was not, Jesus was not going to let go of Peter even though Peter had let go of Jesus. The third scene of the drama takes place in the open air and it doesn't involve Jesus but it does describe the fate of the disciple who betrayed him verses 1 to 10, chapter 27, are not pretty. They confirm for us a number of things. For a start, the conspiracy led by the Sanhedrin against Jesus was confirmed, and how all their illegal trials and methods, they found Jesus guilty, they took him to Pilate to be sentenced. But it also confirms something else along the way, doesn't it? it confirms that Jesus was completely innocent. Don't miss out what verses 3 to 5 tell us. The innocence of Christ is highlighted against the backdrop of Judas's remorse. In verses 1 and 2, Matthew has got you to think in terms of Jesus' death as a judicial action. But in verse 3 to 5, he wants you to understand that Jesus is an innocent man. And that's essential to our salvation that Jesus was innocent. And he's using the story of Judas to highlight that reality. Though he was condemned by the highest courts of the land as worthy of death, even this traitorous disciple who betrayed him knows this truth. I have betrayed an innocent man. Now again, this highlights the origin of the plot. You know the religious leaders give the money to Judas and send him away to do the dirty work, dirty deeds, done dirt cheap. And what they want is this, for Judas and the money and the work to be done and all of it to just go away. And lo and behold, here comes back walking into the temple courts the man who did the deed and the bag of money And once again, Matthew's pointing out the culprits to us. The bag of money comes back to where the plot started. It didn't start with Judas. It started with them. He had some financial encouragement to do what he did and here the money comes right back to the ones who are culpable, who are complicit in the plot J.C. Ryle says here, if there is any living witness who could have given evidence against the Lord Jesus, Judas Iscariot was that man. And his confession was, I have betrayed an innocent man. And the response of these priests and religious leaders who were meant to be the shepherds of the Lord's people well, that's your problem, Judas. That's your problem. The only difference between Judas and Peter is that Judas never came to Christ. Judas went to his co-conspirators. He confessed to them what he'd done. He tried to put it right, but he never went to Christ. He never went to Jesus And by the grace of God, Peter at least stuck somewhere near to Jesus and got that look from Jesus. But Judas separated himself from Jesus. And Matthew wants you as I would want you to seek and find the mercy of the one who can look at you and says, I did this for you. So what have we? Just to conclude, we have religious men who failed in their duty. We have a loud-mouthed disciple who failed to fulfill his promise. We have a wicked disciple who failed to reach repentance. But in the midst of all that, see Jesus who pursued the course without wavering. And who, according to Hebrews 12, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross and despised its shame. And that must include everything that happened in those downward steps that led down and down to the cross. So let us pray in response this prayer. Lord, may I not be ashamed of you. Even though you were hated and scorned, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place, condemned, he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a saviour. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we consider these downward steps today, we would remember with humble and thankful hearts that our Lord Jesus went through what he did for us. And as we come back here on Friday and pick up the text and read further, we know it won't be the end of his humiliation. That he was humbled. He was despised. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And he received from the hands of his creatures that which was wrong, though he had done no wrong, And yet we are the ones who did wrong. Help us, Lord, to sit with these verses again, to think clearly upon what it cost him to purchase us. And so may we not be separate from him as Judas was, but at least close beside so that we can receive his searching look and know that it is one of grace and mercy because he died for sinners. And so we are thankful to you and pray that we might never ever be ashamed of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.